my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your fandom for this evening, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes deadly puppets, killer birds, and angry shadows. Does anyone else want to see a horror movie where Tom Hanks is the killer? Anyway, put on your big bird costumes as we prepare to strut through these bloodthirsty winged demons incognito. Number 1, The Burbs, 1989, directed by Joe Dante. A guy named Ray and two of his neighbors, Art and Mike, think that a new family that moved into the neighborhood are satanic killers. Ray's wife, Carol, makes everyone go meet the new neighbors. Dr. Klopek lives there with his family and seems normal enough. Ray's dog digs up a femur from the Klopeks' backyard. Ray and Art break into the new neighbor's house with Mark as the lookout. Ray digs a hole in the basement and ends up hitting a gas line which blows up the house. Dr. Klopek then admits to Ray that he is a killer, attacks Ray, and gets arrested. Dr. Klopek and his family are the killers. A movie directed by Joe Dante that stars Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher must be amazing, right? The Burbs is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen. The runtime is an hour and 40 minutes and barely anything of note happens. Here are the two best parts of the movie that happen within a 5 minute time period. The first part, Tom Hanks, who plays Ray, eats a pretzel with a sardine on top. You heard me right, Tom Hanks eats a pretzel with a sardine on top. Well, it might have been an anchovy. The sound effects added when Mr. Hanks eats the fishy pretzel are hilarious. I don't think the scene would have worked if it wasn't literally Tom Hanks eating a pretzel with a sardine on top of it. Anyone else would have gotten it wrong. The second part, Tom Hanks drops hot tea in his lap and starts yelling. Again, I only think this scene was hilarious and worked because the person that received a lap full of hot tea was Tom Hanks. Those are the best parts of the burbs. You want more? There are some fun zooms in the movie. During Ray and Art's first attempt to meet the new creepy neighbors, we get a silly zoom in on every person who's spectating the duo walk up to the spooky house. The worried looks on the spectators' faces, which include a dog, coupled with the corny zooms, was rather fun. There's also another shot where the camera zooms in and out on Ray and Art as they scream after Ray's dog brings them a human femur it dug up. I appreciated the goofy zooms. I'm not sure what my opinion regarding Joe Dante is anymore. I love Gremlins, Gremlins 2, and Small Soldiers. I didn't care for the howling, piranha, the burbs. Bearing the X was fine, I guess, and I don't really remember much about the explorers. 
I guess we'll have to watch one more of his movies to break the love and didn't care for it tie. I forgot to mention that Corey Feldman plays what I think is supposed to be a neighbor in his early 20s. Somehow Corey and random people he invites over are able to spectate from Corey's lawn the Three Stooges, Ray, Art, and Mark as they make fools of themselves. How the youngins are able to see literally everything from there makes no sense. Since Corey was friends with Michael Jackson at the time, Bubbles, the chimpanzee, not Jackson, was noted being on set a lot, strangely enough. Since the Burbs is boring garbage, I thought I'd look up the writer to put them on blast. Dana Olson wrote The Burbs. He also wrote the George of the Jungle and Inspector Gadget movies that starred Brendan Fraser and Matthew Broderick, respectively. It seems that Dana Olson only writes quality films. I haven't seen those two movies in some time, but I can assure you that they, at the very least, are less boring than The Burbs. I'm not recommending you see any movie Dana Olson has written. Dick Miller is obviously in this. He plays a garbage man and is great as always. I liked Carrie Fisher. She plays the no-nonsense wife that has to keep her jackass husband on a short leash because that's an old trope that was a thing. Was a thing? That's actually still around somehow now that I think about it. I hate when old movies and shows have a dumb guy who can't hang out with another guy friend because his wife won't let him. It's dumb. Who has a relationship like that? The acting from everyone else in the burbs is hammy and over the top in a bad way. No one is really all that funny. There isn't any gore, just skeletons. There's a nightmare sequence that's pretty lame. Don't watch the burbs. I wouldn't even recommend this movie to Tom Hanks superfans. Just watch Gremlins 2, the new batch for the thousandth time instead. Number 2, Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, 2018, directed by Sonny Laguna and Tommy Wickland. A recently divorced guy named Edgar goes back to his childhood home. He finds a creepy puppet in his deceased brother's room. Edgar decides to sell the puppet at the 30th anniversary of the Toulon Murders Convention that's taking place in a hotel. He's accompanied by a girl named Ashley who instantly becomes his girlfriend and his boss Markowitz. A bunch of people brought puppets to sell at the convention. The puppets made by Toulon come to life and start murdering people. Edgar leaves the hotel and crashes into Toulon's crypt to end the puppet rampage. Zombie Toulon then appears, shoots Ashley in the head, and runs off into the woods. Edgar hints at a sequel. Toulon and his puppets are the killers. When I was young, I went to a sleepover where we watched some movies. I remember that a trailer for Puppet Master played before one of the movies, and it terrified young me. Young me was not a fan of creepy dolls. To be honest, I'm still not a fan of creepy dolls, but they don't scare me like they used to. Barbara Crampton is in Puppet Master The Littlest Reich. She was also in the original. She's probably the best actor of the bunch. Thomas Lennon of Reno 911 fame plays Edgar, and I didn't love him in this. Come to think of it, I haven't loved most of his work outside of Reno 911. He was kind of fun in Balls of Fury, I guess. Ashley is played by Jenny Pelliker. She was alright. Everyone else isn't very good, but overall the acting is better than I expected. S. Craig Zoller wrote Puppet Master The Littlest Reich and Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk was awesome. 
How's the story in Puppet Master TLR? Almost non-existent, unfortunately. The story is people are murdered by Nazi-created puppets in a hotel. We don't care about any of the people in this movie. There is zero character development, and none of the humor outside of the kills lands. The humor during the kills is kind of there. It is inherently funny to see a man that's peeing have his head cut off by a helicopter robot puppet, which causes the decapitated head to end up in the toilet and get literally peed on by the still standing body. The kills are the only reason to consider watching this movie. The kills are great and varied. People are lit on fire. Uh, I mean, obvious mannequins are lit on fire. There are lots of brutal stabs and slashes, drill kills, and people torn apart. The kill where the Jewish caricature doll enters the pregnant woman and bursts out of her stomach with the fetus is a little too edgelord for me, but I have to give it up to Puppet Master The Littlest Reich for the amazing kills in practical gore. I had a lot of fun whenever a puppet was moving around committing murder. The way they made the puppets move really worked for me. I loved their creepy gates. Outside of the over-the-top gore and practical kills, everything else is bad. As mentioned, the story is non-existent, so the movie just jumps to random hotel rooms where characters we, at times, haven't even been introduced to are murdered. The tragic lesbians trope happens twice. The score ranges from bad to ill-fitting to absent. For some reason, we get a sex scene with Edgar and Ashley that is completely unnecessary and out of place. A woman starts climbing a metal post style fence, which is accompanied by the sound of someone climbing a chain link fence. The kills, gore, and puppets are amazing, but everything else is bad. I don't recommend Puppet Master The Littlest Reich as a whole due to this. I'd say watch a kill compilation somewhere instead of wasting your time with the whole movie. You won't miss out on anything if you end up only seeing the kills. This drags way too hard between kills, and there aren't any interesting setups for the kills anyway. I haven't seen any of the original movies, but I am interested in watching the first one since I need to face my childhood fears. Number 3, Puppet Master, 1989, directed by David Schmoller. A guy named Andre Toulon, who knows how to bring inanimate objects to life using an old Egyptian secret, hides his living puppets in a wall of Bodega Bay Inn and kills himself before two guys can get the secret out of him. Fifty years later, a group of sidekicks, Alex, Dana, Frank, and Carissa, go to the inn where they believe their old colleague Gallagher has uncovered Toulon's secret. Gallagher is dead. Puppets then begin killing everyone. Gallagher has brought himself back to life with the secret after committing suicide. He's a jerk to his wife, who he only married to get closer to Toulon's secret. He admits to killing her parents. The puppets then make him dead again. Alex and Gallagher's wife are the only survivors. Gallagher and the living puppets are the killers. Ten years prior to directing Puppet Master, David Schmoller directed Taurus Trap. Both movies have inanimate objects coming to life. Taurus Trap has living mannequins and Puppet Master has living puppets. The puppets are actually living though, while the mannequins were just being moved around by a dude with telekinesis. Puppet Master is a terrible movie. I thought that the first movie in a series that has 12 sequels prequels would be at least half decent. How did such a mediocre movie spawn 12 more films? 
every single kill in Puppet Master is executed horribly. Let me run through all the laughably bad kills. Toulon kills himself with the revolver. This should be hard to mess up, but the sound effect used for the gunshot, mixed with the lack of any reaction from Toulon's body after he's shot, makes the scene way funnier than any suicide should be. For the next kill, Pinhead, the puppet with a small head and big ass arms, lightly taps a woman on the head with the dull side of a fire poker. This kill is practically shown in slow motion, and after the poker collides with the head in a loving tap, we cut to a blood spray. After this, Carissa looks under the bed and sees the puppet with the drill head who begins leisurely jogging over to her and drills into her mouth off screen. This kill would be fine if Carissa didn't have an eternity to move out of the way. Frank, who's tied to a bed, then has leeches applied all over him by the leech spitting doll. It takes what feels like forever for the doll to get out the first leech and then more leeches follow. To be fair, watching the doll spit out leeches did disturb me. The leech spitting is legitimately horrifying. Since Carissa and Frank were doing it, which is why he was tied to the bed, Frank at first believes the puppet is Carissa as it puts its puppet mouth on his nipple multiple times. At first I thought he just believed Carissa was using a puppet on him, but as the puppet suckling commenced, it appeared Frank, for some unknown reason, thought the puppet's mouth was actually Carissa's. I'm not going to go into the logistics regarding how dumb that is. After the duo is dispatched, it's unfortunately Dana's turn to die. Dana is the only likable character in the movie. She can see the future. Sometimes. I'm not sure why she decided to go to the Bodega Bay Inn after she had a vision of her death there. You'd think she'd stay away from all hotels after her vision. Anyway, Dana is an amazing character. When she arrives at the inn and finds out Gallagher is dead, she makes sure by piercing his heart with a giant pin. Don't ever try to prank Dana into thinking you're dead. She'll confirm it. Dana has a Texas accent, well, it's probably just a southern accent, and she goes everywhere with her taxidermy dog. Like I said, Dana is incredible. Her death, on the other hand, not so much. It's a bit drawn out. Dana and Pinhead tussle back and forth. He grabs her, she throws him. He grabs her again, she throws him again. This goes on for quite some time until Dana ends up in an elevator. Pinhead then punches her in the face a few times. These punches don't sell even a little bit and are done so poorly, it's kind of sad. Anyway, the little skeleton guy with pointy objects for arms named Blade jumps down from the elevator shaft and slices Dana's throat. Like all the other gore up to this point, it looks terrible. Surprisingly enough, there is some decent gore. Alex has a dream where he raises his covers to find Dana, Frank, and Carissa's severed heads mocking him. That scene was great. All the corpses are sat at a dinner table and the leech marks on Frank's body look pretty good. The last death is Gallagher. He dies again after all the puppets come together to destroy him. Drill Guy drills into Gallagher's leg, which looks decent. Blade cuts off some of his fingers and pins down a hand. And Pinhead holds his head in place while Leech Lady does her thing and rouse the leech into Gallagher's mouth. All of this kills him, which is 
Kinda weird, given that he was already dead, and allegedly an immortal who couldn't be killed unless his entire body was destroyed, which it's definitely not. The biggest plot hole in this movie about a secret Egyptian method that brings inanimate objects to life is Gallagher's rebirth. If he killed himself, how was he able to do the secret method on himself to bring himself back from the dead? It appears that all you need to do is say a few words to bring something to life, so maybe he timed a recorded message of himself to play post-mortem? It doesn't matter. The acting is surprisingly decent from everyone except our protagonist, Alex, who might as well have been a cardboard cutout. I was worried that this big hair don't care looking lame was going to end up with Gallagher's wife, but luckily the movie ends with them only being friends. Speaking of Gallagher's wife, at the end of the movie she shows that she knows the secret method by bringing the taxidermy dog back to life. Come to think of it, that taxidermy dog had more charisma than Alex before it was brought back to life. Alex looks like a kid in a suit that has the face of a man in his 50s, or like a crappy knockoff of one of those old busts of Beethoven. The score is your typical whimsical late 80s, early 90s score. For some reason, the puppets breathe heavily. Maybe only Blade is doing the heavy breathing, but I definitely could have done without it. Puppet Master is a bad movie. Don't waste your time. At least Littlest Reich had some fun kills. OG Puppet Master has lame kills that are executed poorly and awful looking puppet movements. If any of you are Puppet Master fanatics, let me know if any of the other movies are actually fun, because as far as I'm concerned, the PM train stops here. Barbara Crampton did appear for two seconds to get her fortune read by Dana, and it was nice seeing her. I'm not sure why she has such a following now that I think about it. She's great and all, but wasn't in that many horror movies. I'll probably check out the one she's in that I haven't seen in the future. I still need to see From Beyond and Castle Freak. Number 4, The Eyes of My Mother, 2016, directed by Nicholas Pesci. A young girl named Fran meets a serial killer named Charlie who kills her mom. Fran's dad comes home, captures Charlie, and chains him up in a barn. Fran removes his eyes and vocal cords. Years pass and Fran's dad passes away. Fran has sex with Charlie who then tries to escape. Fran kills him. Fran goes to a bar and brings a girl home. Fran kills the girl. Fran hitchhikes with a mom and baby. Fran steals the baby, attacks the mom, chains her up in the barn, and removes her eyes and vocal cords. Fran raises the child as her own and names him Antonio. Antonio finds out there's a woman chained up in the barn and lets her free. She is saved by a truck driver. The police come to Fran's house and shoot her. The serial killer named Charlie and Fran are the killers. I didn't know what to expect from the eyes of my mother and can safely say I did not see so much weird, disturbing stuff coming. I knew Charlie was a serial killer as soon as he popped up. If he was in a lineup, you'd be able to point him out. Charlie might as well be screaming, I'm a serial killer at the top of his lungs every two seconds. Why Fran's mom decided to let him in the house before he showed her a gun is beyond me. A lot of inexplicable things happen early on now that I think about it. Mom letting in serial killer McGee, 
dad not contacting the authorities after capturing serial killer McGee, and young Fran being pretty cool with everything and eventually removing serial killer McGee's eyes and vocal cords. All seems strange. Sure, young Fran's mom was an eye surgeon back in Portugal who showed Fran some surgery stuff on a cow's head, but that doesn't mean young Fran would be a sociopathic child surgeon. Maybe she had her own serial killer living inside her all along. We don't get an overall view of her entire childhood. Her dad does make her clean up all of mom's blood. I guess the dad doesn't call the police because what's done is done and chaining up the serial killer is a much better and more sinister punishment than handing him over to the police. Mom letting Charlie Bundy into the house. Maybe she thought that complying to his request to use the bathroom would increase her chances of not being murdered by the obvious serial killer. It's probably not obvious at this point, but I actually really enjoyed the eyes of my mother. The cinematography is great. There are powerful wide shots, overhead shots, and shots with great composition. Like the shot where we see Fran approach escaping Charlie all from one of the house's windows. This is in black and white. It looks great. I do think the black and white helps sell some of the gore makeup effects. Most of the gore makeup looks pretty great, but when Fran gives old Charlie a bath and removes his blindfold that had somewhat fused to his face, Things look a little off and would probably sell a lot less if the effects were shown in color. Besides that instance, all the others shown gore is solid. Turns out the three Portuguese speaking characters all speak with a different accent. I couldn't tell. Most of the eyes of my mother is actually in English. Kika Malgaheas plays Fran. She does a great job at playing the loner sociopath. All of her victims aren't all that believable, but they end up doing a fine enough job. The sound design only took me out of the film twice. During one moment, it sounded like a car was pulling up, but there wasn't a car. After Fran stabs the mom who's trying to get back her baby, the mom is crawling on the ground while the sounds of a baby screaming its head off are playing. Thing is, the baby, whom you can see, doesn't match the crying. It would have been way creepier if the baby was silent. Speaking of creepy, there are a lot of creepy moments in the film, like Fran living with her corpse dad and giving his corpse a bath. Charlie bashing Fran's mom's corpse over and over in that same tub. Come to think of it, everyone shown in that tub dies. Mom, dad, Charlie, and Fran. If you want to live, do not get in the murder tub. Dad died of old age, but still, murder tub. The whole idea of having your eyes and vocal cords removed during your permanent stay chained up in a barn is horrifying. The creepiest moment is probably when Antonio meets his real mom in the barn. She crawls out of the darkness making hissing sounds since, you know, no vocal cords. On a lighter note, after Fran ran away with the baby, I said out loud, Whoa, she stole that mom's baby! The Eyes of My Mother is a disturbingly entertaining time. You should check out this movie. I liked it a bunch. Number 5, The Birds, 1963, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. A man named Mitch stalks a girl named Melanie. Melanie then stalks him to Bodega Bay. There, the two begin to fall in love. 
Birds start killing people. Melanie barely survives an attack. Mitch, his sister Kathy, and their mother Lydia jump in a car with Melanie to take her to a hospital. Smoking and birds are the killers. Smoking... A man with no situational awareness lights a cigar while surrounded by gasoline and explodes. Maybe he had a stuffy nose and couldn't smell anything that day, or just rolled poorly on a perception check. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. The movie everyone has heard about, but no one under the age of 50 has actually seen. I decided to watch it for this episode solely because I thought it would be funny to watch The Burbs and The Birds. Boy, do I regret that decision since the movies didn't turn out to be all that stellar and the whole burbs, birds thing isn't all that funny. You know, burbs, birds, birds, burbs, Christian Bale, Kristen Bell. The Birds is my third Hitchcock film and it's by far the most boring. I really liked Psycho and Rear Window, but boy oh boy is The Birds way too long. This movie is two hours. I don't even think the birds really start attacking until the second half of the movie. If the first half isn't filled with bird attacks, what happens in the first half? Well, listener, what happens in the first half is one of the creepiest courtships I've ever seen in a movie. Melanie is looking to pick up a bird she bought in a bird shop. She likes to go bird shopping on Fridays. It's Friday, I buy birds! Mitch walks up to her in the shop and is a jerk. He reveals that he saw her in court and disappears. Melanie then hunts down Mitch, whom isn't all that good looking or charismatic. For the amount of effort and stalking Melanie does, you'd think Mitch is tens across the board. Maybe this was how courting was back in the 60s. Find someone you like and play a stalkerish game of cat and mouse. One of my favorite movies, Amelie, has a similar stalker approach to romance. I think I'm alright with it in Amelie because it's presented in a cuter way. It was also way less creepy. There's a Weird Al song called Melanie that's written from the point of view of a stalker. I wonder if he was influenced by the birds. Probably only a coincidence. I love the song Melanie. Unfortunately, Al didn't play that song at the ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour show I attended. He didn't play Albuquerque either at that one. Feels bad, man. The gore in the birds is laughably bad. I'm not giving it a pass based on when it was released, since Black Sunday was released around the same time and had amazing gore. The birds' gore consists entirely of fake blood painted on people. That's a lie. The Birds does have one instance of decent gore. You see an old dude that had his eyes pecked out. That was great. All the other gore is bad though. Speaking of effects, the bird effects are mostly real birds. It's impressive. There was a lot of bird training. A lot. There are multiple shots with tons of birds. The only bird effects I didn't like were the composite shots. They don't sell at all. I learned some old slang from this movie. Mitch is a lawyer, and it's revealed that he mostly works for hoods. In the 50s and 60s, hoods referred to juvenile delinquents. At one point in the movie, Mitch calls his mom Darling. An ex of Mitch's named Annie also brings up him probably having an Oedipus complex. 
His mom, Lydia, is super mean to all the girls that try to snag Mitch, so it's lucky that Melanie was able to trauma bond her way in with these bird attacks. What I'm saying is, Melanie might be a witch that planned all of this. The birds started attacking after she shows up in the Bay Area. Some woman even calls her out on it, so Melanie smacks the woman into silence. Did I mention this is set in Bodega Bay? Accidental Bodega Bay theme achieved since Puppet Master also happens in Bodega Bay. It just seems to be a place, not a reference or anything. Crows are one of the bird species that get in on the murdering. Insert murder of crows joke here. Wait, those were ravens. At one point in the birds, birds fly down the chimney. To stop this from happening in the future, Mitch lights the fireplace. This made me think, great, now not only are birds still going to get inside, now they're going to be on fire. Unfortunately, there isn't a scene where Mitch and crew have to fight flaming birds. As silly as the premise of this movie is, the thought of being attacked by a bunch of birds is actually terrifying. How would you defend against unending flocks? All I can think of is a flamethrower, which still isn't perfect because of the aforementioned flaming bird issue. Alfred Hitchcock proves he's the master of suspense with a scene where Melanie ascends a staircase to check out some ruffling. Everything before this is silly, yet somehow the staircase scene still made me anxious. At one point when Melanie is driving to Bodega Bay, we see two lovebirds that she got for Mitch's sister's birthday bob left and right with the car's movements. I thought this was strangely hilarious. The birds is way too long. I don't recommend sitting down and giving it your full attention. It's a background movie. A very good background movie. Throw the birds on in the background of your next shindig. Make sure that everyone stops what they're doing to watch that funny scene where the kid is on the ground flailing while a raven is on her back, pecking her in the back of the head. Also remember that for the scene where Tippi Hedren, who played Melanie, was attacked by all the birds in a room, it took seven days to shoot and birds were tied to her. They had to stop production after shooting the scene due to Hedren being hospitalized for exhaustion after the seven days of bird torture. Number 6, Us, 2019, directed by Jordan Peele. This just came out and I know a bunch of you probably don't want it spoiled. Just know that I recommend seeing Us even though I have some issues with it. Now, unless you've seen the movie or don't care about the spoilers, skip to 39 minutes 10 seconds. Alright, jumping into it now. 3, 2, 1, Us 2019 directed by Jordan Peele. A young girl named Addie meets a girl that looks exactly like her at the Santa Cruz beach. Years pass and Addie, her husband Gabriel, and their two kids Zora and Jason go to a beach house in Santa Cruz that Addie used to go to as a kid. The family hangs out with some friends on the beach. After the beach day, doppelgangers of at least everyone in the area pop up and start trying to kill the people they are tethered to. At one point, Addie's doppelganger kidnaps Jason. Addie goes to where she originally met the doppelganger and enters an underground facility. Addie kills her doppelganger and rescues Jason. It's revealed that Addie is actually the doppelganger and that she switched places with the real Addie when they were kids. 
The doppelgangers, aka the tethered, are the killers. I'm going to end up getting a little ranty, so I'll start with things I liked. The acting is solid across the board, with Lupita Nyong'o stealing the show. Her performances are incredible. She's two completely different characters. The kids even do a pretty good job. Us is visually stunning. The aesthetic of the film is spectacular. Almost everything shown on screen is great. I especially love the night scenes at the Santa Cruz Pier. The cinematography is well done. And there are some really cool shots, like the shot of Addie over the doppelganger's shoulder. There's a sequence where we see another family, the friends of our main family, murdered by their doppelgangers, and it's amazing. Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss play the parents of the attacked family, and everything that takes place in their house is awesome. I didn't love the Alexa, called Ophelia in the movie, music playing gag, but I didn't mind it either. The only thing I didn't love in Peel's other movie, Get Out, was the TSA agent friend because the comedy he brought didn't work with the rest of the movie. Luckily, the comedy in Us is a lot more harmonious with the horror this time around. There are some really funny moments like when the family discusses who's the kill leader. The humor in Us definitely worked for me. The horror was also there. When Addie first meets her doppelganger, it's incredibly creepy. Who would have thought that a little girl smiling could be so horrifying? I thought there was going to be something wrong with the girl's face, but her sinister smile was way better than any messed up face could have been. I also thought the daughter's doppelganger still trying to murder Addie while mangled in a tree was unnerving. Gore isn't really prevalent, which is fine, and what you do see is well done. The score and soundtrack is solid. The creepy remix of I Got Five on it is amazing. I think the first two thirds of us is incredibly strong. Before I start complaining, y'all know me, I'm going to complain. I want to say I loved a lot of things in this movie and think it's worth seeing. So what did I have trouble with? The explanation. If you have some crazy, unexplainable element in your movie, here's a tip. Don't explain it. Let the audience come up with their own theories because if you decide to explain why doppelgangers exist and are attacking their lookalikes, you better have an amazing explanation. The explanation for the doppelgangers is bad and doesn't make any sense. Their existence is explained by Addie's doppelganger, who I'll refer to as Red, since that's her name in the credits. We get two speeches from Red as exposition. I hate this kind of exposition, especially when it isn't necessary. Red first goes over how the doppelgangers are tethered to their doubles after she and her family invade Addie's house. This exposition is passable. It gives some motive and an idea of what the tethered are. Is it needed? Not really. The second, much longer-winded exposition is awful. I understand that a lot of the exposition and explanation is needed to make the social commentary clear, but I'm not here to talk about the social commentary, which though important, is never going to make up for other issues I have with the film. In Red's second big speech, she tells us all about how she and the other doppelgangers were created by the government and left underground after they were considered a failure. Red tells all of this to Addie, whom already knows about the tethered. 
It's incredibly weird that Red doesn't call Addie out for stealing her place above ground, or at least comment on it in some way. I'm fine with the twist that Addie is the tethered version, I just think it's handled poorly due to Red's lack of acknowledging this fact. The twist was obvious anyways. When we are told the government made all these copies, I thought to myself, okay, maybe, maybe the government made a bunch of copies of people that lived in Santa Cruz. We are then shown that there are what appear to be copies of everyone in the United States. Hmm, okay, I'd be fine with this reveal if I wasn't told that all these tethered were created by the government and lived underground. How did the Tethered get a plethora of red jumpsuits, leather gloves, and antique scissors? I wouldn't be asking these questions if I wasn't told the government made them and kept them underground. I might not be remembering this correctly, and maybe the government just found the Tethered, but even if they were just found, it still doesn't answer a lot of my questions. Why can Jason control his doppelganger? Jason makes his tethered walk back into a fire. If the people above ground control what the tethered do underground, how were the tethered able to fight against being controlled? You're telling me real Addie didn't even attempt to run up the escalator? She knows about the surface. Sure, it would be hard, but given the circumstances, I believe she'd be able to run up and escape. I don't want to be wrong here. YouTube, running up escalator... That dude's completely out of shape and almost made it. Huh, let's keep searching. These girls did it. Yep, it's possible to run up an escalator that's going down. So many plot holes are created by the explanation we're given. I wish if any explanation at all, all we got was Red's original speech in the house. X this idea of doppelgangers living underground completely. The explanation ruined us for me. I still had a great time watching the movie and heavily enjoyed most of it. I don't need an explanation for the doppelgangers deciding to do Hands Across America. I don't need an explanation as to why they exist. Addie fights Red and oh boy, did I hate how this part of the film was shown. Addie and Red did ballet when they were younger, so when they fight we cut back and forth between them fighting and dancing. It's awful and jarring. For a movie that does everything else right when it comes to visuals, I can't believe the big climactic fight is portrayed so poorly. Don't come at me with the symbolism option select either. Symbolism does not make something that looks bad magically look good. I appreciated the symbolism in Us and all the references packed into the movie, but symbolism and references do not fill the plot holes the explanation creates. I would have loved us if instead of trying to explain everything and showing the underground in the last third of the movie, more time was shown above ground with the tethered. I think a face-off between Addie and Red in the Hall of Mirrors, where they originally met, would have been amazing. Go watch us. It does a ton right. I will definitely continue to check out Jordan Peele's other films. Unfortunately, the explanation in us left a sour taste in my mouth. Number 7. Love, Death, and Robots Netflix just released a bunch of neat short films under the name Love, Death, and Robots. I watched all of the 18 shorts in one day, and since some of them have horror elements, I thought to myself, why not talk about them here? I want to start off asking, why don't we have more animated horror? 
animation is a perfect medium for horror. You can do crazy intense gore and make any otherworldly creatures you can think of. I know that all you listeners at one point in time have seen a drawing or painting that has terrified you more than anything you've seen in a live action movie. I'd really like to see a shift to adult oriented R-rated animated feature length horror movies. I know that a lot of horror movies are made on the cheap and animation can get expensive but I'd still love to see some creative animated horror features. Love, Death, and Robots gave me a taste of what I want. There's a short called Shapeshifters where there is a werewolf fight that is more brutal than any werewolf fight I've ever seen in a movie. The transformations are also incredible since these werewolves literally shed their human skin when transforming. It's unsettling and awesome. The actual plot of that short was... Cheesy and terrible army garbage, but the werewolf fight and gore was incredible. I would have preferred a World War II setting, like in Secret War, another short, instead of the current day Afghanistan setting of shapeshifters. Speaking of amazing gore and terrible story, the series starts off with Sunny's Edge. The writing is awful, but you get to see two incredibly designed monsters fight to the death. After the monster fight, you see the pilot get brutally murdered by a robot model Wolverine knockoff and its owner. The gore is visceral and intense. Love, Death, and Robots starts off with this level of gore. The world of Sunny's Edge makes me want a feature-length film set in it. With different writers, though. I enjoyed the body horror from the one called Helping Hand. Sure, it was basically gravity, but Sandra Bullock didn't break off her frozen arm and throw it for a momentum boost back to her ship. That's some insane body horror. Funnily enough, my favorite short of the bunch had the most cartoonish gore. My favorite is Sucker of Souls. Some archaeologists and mercenaries find none other than Dracula himself, who is still alive and ready to murder. A guy is sliced in half in a hilarious, gory fashion. The writing in this short is funny and perfect. I'd love to see more from Studio La Cachet, who brought us Sucker of Souls. I definitely recommend checking out all of Love, Death, and Robots. If you know about any cool animated horror, please let me know because I need more. Thank you for listening to Blank is the Killer 41, Deadly Puppets, Killer Birds, and Angry Shadows. You listeners are the real credits to team of this podcast. You know who else is credit to team? Sticker Fridge. A big shout out to them for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to trickle into your minds. If you dug this or any other episode of Blank is the Killer, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating on iTunes. It's quick and easy if you have an iPhone, and really brightens my life to see. My current plan for next episode is to do a series. I'm going to open it up to a vote. If you'd like to vote, comment on the Instagram post for the podcast that will be posted on my Bonesaw Baker account on Monday. The series you'll be able to vote for are Critters, Ghoulies, and The Purge. I think I said I'd watch Critters for this episode, but decided to postpone it for a series episode. Blank is the Killer will be back with episode 42 on April 7th. Until then, make sure not to bathe or even crawl into an empty murder tub. If I know my murder tubs, you'll meet your untimely, 
or timely demise afterwards. Maybe the secret to immortality is to never hang out in a bathtub. <laughs>